I'm excited to be with you today and to share the word of the Lord with you. I do not take it lightly. I want you to know that I count it as an honor and a privilege to stand before each and every one of you today. And I want us to begin with a word of prayer, and let's ask God to speak to us today, because at the end of the day, nobody here needs to hear from me. Everybody here needs to hear from God, including myself. Let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for the privilege of coming into this house to come before your face. Lord, we've come to this place called church, but we have not come to this place called church because we need church. We've come to this place called church because we need God. And the real purpose of this place called church is to be a place where we can meet with God. And Father, if you do not come and show us your glory and pour out your love upon us, we have gathered for no reason at all. And so, Father, I pray that you'd hide me behind the shadow of the cross and Holy Spirit, that you would speak and that you would make known to us the good pleasure of your will. We pray it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. I'm going to read to you a passage of Scripture out of the book of John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. The book of John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. This is what it says. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus makes a statement to Nicodemus, and that statement is, you must be born again. Now, I want us to understand how utterly ridiculous and off the subject this statement must have sounded to Nicodemus. I want us to understand how random that statement must have sounded to Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a ruler of the Pharisees, which means he is a religious leader in ancient Israel at the time. And Nicodemus sees Jesus as a religious leader. So when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, he comes as one religious leader to another religious leader. But first of all, he comes to Jesus by night. And the reason he comes to Jesus by night is because it was not very popular amongst the other religious leaders in that day to go talk to Jesus. So he wants to go talk to Jesus, but he doesn't want anybody to know that he's going to talk to Jesus. 
He wants to go see Jesus and check Jesus out, but he doesn't want to do it publicly. He wants to do it at night. And what he's coming to Jesus to say basically is, game recognized game. (laughs) He's coming to Jesus to say, I can see that like me, you are an awesome religious leader in our day. And matter of fact, I can tell that you're a rabbi. He uses the, the, the term rabbi, which is the heightened form of the word teacher in ancient Israel. It was the highest level of teacher you could be. I know that you're a teacher come from God. I'm a teacher who comes from God. So why don't you and I kick it a little bit and let's see if I can learn something from you and maybe you could learn something from me. You see, he comes to Jesus thinking that him and Jesus are going to kick it on the down low. He wants to low-key kick it with Jesus. But Jesus is not interested in low-key kicking it with anybody. And so, he approaches Jesus as a religious leader, and what he is expecting to receive from Jesus are religious instructions. What he's expecting to get from Jesus, his next line of questioning was going to be, what are the religious requirements that you have for your disciples? You see, in that day and age, if you were a rabbi, you had followers that were called disciples, and there were many of them, many of those rabbis in ancient Israel who had disciples that, that followers that were called disciples. And what those rabbis did was each of those rabbis had what was called a yoke. If you wanted to follow a rabbi, you had to take that rabbi's yoke. And the yoke of the rabbi is whatever religious and moral requirements that rabbi laid upon you. So there were certain rabbis who required their disciples to fast on Thursdays. So if you took the the yoke of that rabbi, you didn't eat any food on Thursdays. There were other rabbis, perhaps, who required their disciples not to eat any meat, only to eat fish. And so if you took the yoke of that rabbi, you stopped eating meat. And so the yoke of the rabbi was his list of rules and regulations that governed the morality and religiosity of his followers. Nicodemus was expecting to compare yokes with Jesus. Tell me about your moral obligations. Tell me about your religious requirements. If I want to be one of your disciples, what is the yoke that I have to carry? And Jesus completely flips the script on Nicodemus and says, you must be born again. Nicodemus is getting ready to ask, what do I have to do to be one of your followers? And Jesus' response is, you must be born again. And the way in which Jesus answers Nicodemus' question indicates, first of all, Nicodemus, you have no idea who I actually am. You see, Jesus spent a lot of time in his day explaining to both people who thought they accepted him and people who thought they rejected him that they actually didn't know who he was. People would come to him and say, I accept you. He says, really, do you know who I am? I don't think you know. Let me tell you who I really am, and then you can determine if you accept me or not. And other people say, I reject you. Really, you reject me? You don't even know who I am. How do you know if you accept me or reject me? There's a lot of people walking around today who think they know what they think about Jesus, but the Jesus they're thinking about is not the real Jesus. You have a perception of who Jesus is, and then you create an opinion of that perception and think you have actually made a decision about who Jesus is. You don't have a clue who Jesus is. You're not qualified to have an opinion about who Jesus is. All you have is a perception. 
Wouldn't it be important to get to know the real Jesus before you actually make a decision about how you feel about him and what you think about him? And in like manner, because we've so misunderstood Jesus in our culture, we have completely misunderstood the Christian faith. Because by and large, in our culture, we understand the Christian faith to be an invitation to a religious morality. It is religious because it's about doing this and doing that. And it is moral because it's about not doing this and not doing that. So if you ask most people on the street, what's the Christian faith all about? They will give you a litany of religious things. Well, you got to go to church and you got to give a tithe and you got to give an offering and then you got to go to Sunday school and then you got to lift your hands, you got to sing these songs, you got to say these prayers. And then they'll give you a, a, a moral list as well. And you got to stop smoking and drinking and chewing, you know, and having sex and uh, doing drugs and. And you got to stop these things and you got to start these things. And if you can stop doing these things, and if you can start doing these things, then you're a Christian. So then the question is, do you want to be a Christian? No. Right, right. Well, why not? Number one, I don't think I can stop doing these things. And number two, why would I want to start doing these things? And what you've rejected is a perception of the Christian faith that's not even what it's all about. You see, the religious leaders in Jesus' day, they preached religious morality. Do this and do that. If you talk to any of the other rabbis in Israel, they would tell you, wake up at this time, get into this position, and pray the following prayers. But Jesus says, you must be born again. If you talk to the other religious leaders in Jesus' day, they would say, this is when you are to fast, and this is when you are to eat. And when you eat, this is what you are to eat. And when you go to church, this is what time you go to church. And this is where you sit when you go to church. But Jesus would say, you must be born again. You see, the Christian faith is neither about religiosity or morality. You cannot religify yourself into the kingdom of God, and neither can you moralify yourself into the kingdom of God. You can be very moral, but be outside of the kingdom, and you can be very religious and be outside of the kingdom. Going to church does not make you any more Christian than going to Taco Bell makes you Mexican. <laughs> Jesus says... First of all, my type of discipleship is not about producing a new generation of religiously moral people. That's not what I'm trying to produce. That's not who I am. And that's why you don't enter into my discipleship and become one of my followers by being more moral and more religious. No, it's different. You must be born again. Now, let me say something to you. If you have absolutely no desire to become more religious, you're a perfect candidate for the gospel of Jesus Christ. The religious leaders of Jesus' day hated him because he was the least religious religious leader in the history of religious leaders. <laughs> a non-religious religious leader, so much so that he wouldn't allow himself to be called a religious leader because that's not what he was leading. Nicodemus, you've completely misunderstood me. First and foremost, I'm not trying to gather followers and put them into a building and put their butts in seats and their dollars in plates. That's not what I'm all about. I'm trying to bring people into the kingdom of God. Second of all, to get into my kingdom, fasting on Thursday won't do it, and not eating meat won't do it. You must be born again. 
Now, to understand why this is the way to enter into the kingdom of Jesus, you first must understand who Jesus is. You see, if he was just a rabbi, then being moral and religious would be fine to enter into his discipleship. But because he's not just a rabbi, you can't enter into his discipleship in those ways. The heart of the gospel contains three truths about who Jesus actually is. And if you don't understand these three truths, you will never actually understand what the gospel is or what the invitation actually is. The first truth of the gospel is that Jesus is the Son of God. You see it over and over and over through the gospels. Jesus is the Son of God. This is the foundation of gospel truth. Jesus is the Son of God. Now, what does that mean? The prophet Isaiah began to describe this more than 500 years before the coming of Christ. He said, For unto us a child is given, unto us a son is born, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. In another place, the same prophet began to speak of this child who would be born, and he said, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. The whole point of God giving his own son to be born as a child is that the child represents the very presence of God with us. That is, God didn't simply come down in a vision and show himself to us. No, he was born among us. It's called the incarnation. You can't get any closer. I mean, imagine, let's say you wanted to make an impact on, uh, on uh, with, with, say, Syrian refugees, right? And so you moved there, and you moved into one of the refugee camps, and you started to serve the Syrian refugees. You could do a lot there. That's great, right? But what if you could be born as a Syrian refugee and grow up among them? but bring a level of resources from another kingdom that is beyond so that you're a Syrian refugee, but you also came from another place and you brought resources from another kingdom. Who's closer, the one born a Syrian or the one who transplants and begins to live among the Syrian refugees? You see, God didn't simply come to us as a transplant. He was born as one of us. You can't get any closer than being born into our family. And so to say that Jesus is the Son of God means that He represents God's very presence with us. He is God with us. It means that God has drawn closer than you could ever imagine that He would come as to be born into our very family. But secondly, there's this scandal of smallness. You see, He was born as a baby, a helpless baby. Isn't it amazing that God would come in the form of a helpless baby? spitting up, pooping on himself, crying, screaming, baby. That God would become helpless so that he could be with us. God with us, joining us in the most helpless of our experiences. Coming alongside us to demonstrate his presence to us. God with us. Jesus is God with us us, sharing the most intimate components of our humanity, God with us. And nobody expected to see the kingdom of God in a baby. Nobody saw this child and thought, there's the kingdom of God. He's born in a manger, not in a palace. He's born in a barn, not in a palace. He's laid in a feeding trough, not in a bassinet. And it's just some random individuals that received the revelation of who he actually was that this is not just the child of Mary, this is the Son of God. 
But the presence of God among us in Jesus was a secret until it was announced in the gospel through John the Baptist. And remember, when Jesus goes into the Jordan River and convinces John to baptize him, when Jesus comes out of the water, watch this, Jesus comes out of the water and the Father tears open the heavens and speaks in an audible voice. And what does he say? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And he speaks that over Jesus before he ever worked a miracle, before he ever walked on water, before he ever opened blind eyes or deaf ears, before he, gave a, he ever taught a parable or preached a sermon, before he had ever died on the cross. Isn't it interesting that before he had ever satisfied any religious obligations, God speaks and says, I love him and I'm pleased with him. Why? Because he's my son. What we learn from the sonship of Jesus is that God is partial to family members. He's not looking for church members. He's looking for family members. He's pleased with his son. He's pleased and he loves his son. He might, and he might even look upon one of his children and say, he's not perfect, but he's my son. And that's how all of us feel about our children, right? I mean, if you got kids, you know what I'm talking about. If you got kids, you know that they are not perfect. The Bible teaches we're all born into sin. Somebody said, well, prove that we're born into sin. You got any kids? That kid was born a sinner. Tell the truth. Do you have to teach your kid how to lie? No, you got to teach him how not to lie. He <laughs> said, she's a born sinner. I got a little sinner growing up in my house. She was born a sinner. She needed to get saved. She got baptized at the retreat last week, and I was real excited about that. But before we even got home from the retreat, I wanted to baptize her again. <laughs> she done backslid. <laughs> Said it didn't take. We've we got to baptize you three times. One for the father, one for the son. But I love her. Why? Because she's my kid. Not because she's perfect. Not because she's moral, not because she's religious, because she's my kid. I'm pleased with her because she's my kid. That's what the father says. He looks at Jesus and says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Why do I love him? Because he's my son. Why am I pleased with him? Because he's my son. And so the fundamental truth of the gospel is that Jesus is the Son of God. And that's good news to us because it means that God has drawn close to us. It means that God didn't send an angel or a servant. He sent His own Son. He sent the one whom He loved most dearly. The one closest to His heart. The apple of His eye. He sends His Son to us to demonstrate just how far He's willing to go to reconcile us to Himself. Just how far. And He sends His Son to us knowing that we would kill Him. I heard a testimony recently about a, a man, a father, who took his teenage son and his teenage son friend out on a fishing trip on a boat, and there was a huge storm that hit, and his, two, his son and his friend fell out of the boat, and they were both drowning. And God spoke to him. He realized he could only save one. And God spoke to him and said, save the one that doesn't know me. And he reached past his son, and he grabbed his son's friend and pulled him into the boat and his son drowned before his eyes. And all he could do is pull his son's body out of the waters. And with tears in his eyes, his son's friend said to him, why would you reach past your own son to save me? 
And he looked at the, the young man and he said, because I know where my son is going. I don't know where you're going. And that young man was so moved that this man would give his son for him. That that man received Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And that man devoted his life to the ministry and became a pastor. How powerful is that? The father loved us so much that he was willing to send not an angel, not a messenger, not just a prophet, but his own son to us to demonstrate how much he loves us. Jesus is the son of God. This is the foundation of the gospel. However, it's not the only truth about Jesus. There's another truth about Jesus that's just as fundamental to the gospel, and that truth is this. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. This truth is so fundamental to the gospel that at a certain point they removed the word the from that declaration and just started calling him Jesus Christ. It became a proper name. It was first a confession. Jesus is the Christ. But that confession was so prominent that they removed the is the and just began to call him Jesus Christ. And what it means to say that Jesus is the Christ it means to say that he is the Savior. You see, whenever the Bible talks about Jesus as the Christ, it's talking about his death on the cross. It's talking about the fact that he was willing to take upon himself all of our sin and all of our failure and all of our pain and all of our sickness and all of our suffering and everything that's gone wrong in our lives. He took it upon himself and he died on the cross. He died to clear it all out of the way so that we could be reconnected with God the Father. I read a testimony about a young man who had had a falling out with his father when he was late in his teens, and he moved away as soon as he graduated high school, and for the next 25 years, he didn't speak a word to his father. And his sister called him one day and said, you've got to come home. He said, I'm not coming home. She said, you must come. He said, I can't come because I hate dad. She said, you must come because you love mom. He comes home and finds that his mother is on her deathbed. She's only got a few breaths left, and he runs to her bedside, and he takes her hands, not knowing that on the other side of her bed, lurking down in the shadows, is his father, who wants to be near his son, but afraid to show his face. And the mother grabs her son's hand with one hand, reaches and grabs the father's hand with the other, puts their two hands together, and then breathes her last. With her last breath, she wanted to reunite her son and his father. What Jesus actually did on the cross with his arms stretched out and nailed to that bloody rugged tree is he reached with one hand into heaven and took the father's hand and reached with the other hand to the earth and took our hands and he put our hands together and then said, it is finished and breathed his last he didn't just die to pay the punishment for our sin, but to redeem us and to bring us back into right relationship with the Father. To say He is the Christ means that He is the Savior. You see, if He was the Son of God, but not the Christ, His Sonship would simply be something that He held over us. Hello, everyone. I'm the Son of God. Sorry for y'all. But I am the Son of God. But because he is not only the son, but also the savior, it means that his sonship is a gift that he offers us. 
and says, if you come to faith in what I did for you, I can take the Father's hand and your hand and put you together. That is, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, when you truly believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you are saved. And what that means is that a resurrection happens on the inside of you and you are born again. That is something on the inside of you comes to life that was not alive before. And when you are born again, it means you're born a child in God's household. It means that even if you haven't done anything religious, even if you haven't memorized a scripture, given an offering, gone to church, uh, studied anything, you haven't gone through a Bible study, but you've believed on Jesus Christ and you were born again, the Father looks upon you at that very moment in which you're born again and says, this is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. I'm pleased with you. Why? Not because you're religious, not because you're moral, but because you're my child. God is partial to family members. Jesus is not only the Son of God and the Savior or the Christ, but the Bible also teaches that Jesus is Lord. He is the Son of God. He is the Christ and he is the Lord. And if he were the Son of God and the Christ, but not the Lord, we would be in trouble. Do you know why? Because we would be reconciled to God, but nothing would actually change in our hearts. Because we would have no power to change ourselves from the inside. And we would struggle the rest of our lives to try to be more moral and to try to be more religious so that we could please the Father so that we could make ourselves good enough for the Father. But I've got good news for you. He's not only the Son of God, and He's not only the Christ, but He's also the Lord. And to say He is the Lord, it means that He has the authority to actually change your life from the inside out. You see, the thing that keeps most people from coming to Jesus is this expectation that if I fully surrender my life to Jesus, there's some stuff I'm going to have to let go of that I don't know how to let go of. Let me tell you something. You're right. You can't let go of it. You can't let go of nothing, and neither can I. Let me tell you something. You and I are completely powerless to change ourselves in any substantial way. I mean, we can modify our behavior here and there, but we can't change our hearts. But Jesus is Lord which means he has authority over your heart if you surrender it to him. It means he's able to take from you what needs to be taken from you in order to cause you to grow to maturity in your relationship with God the Father. It means you don't have to figure out how to quit this or that. You simply need to surrender to Jesus. You know, my wife, my wife, when she was in her early 20s, she was running wild and she was partying and she was drinking and she was getting high and she was doing all that stuff. It's funny, when you see my wife, you know, this nice little cute Korean girl, you know, she's very, very quaint and, you know, very, very nice. And you would never think that she'd be smoking uh, cocaine. And you know what I mean? It's like when you see, when you hear that, it just will blow you away. She says, oh, yeah, we used to get hotel rooms and we used to just snort lines of crack, uh, cocaine all night long. You know, and she said that didn't do anything for, for me until I did the coke smoke. And that's when, you know, when you smoke cocaine, you know, she's like, oh, that's why people do drugs. I mean, it's crazy, right? It's like, you see my little wife, Pastor Sonny, you know, preaching the gospel. She's over there in San Francisco right now. Say hi to, to Soda. Hi, Soda. We're live streaming there right now. Yeah. Oh, so that means she heard that. So. <laughs> but you know, you know, her sister came to her. Check this out. Her sister came to her. This is such a powerful testimony. Her sister came to her and said, this is what I want you to do. I'm not asking you to change anything about your life. 
I'm just asking you to take 15 minutes every night, 10, 15 minutes every night, and open your Bible and read one chapter, and then just write a prayer to God. And when you write your prayer to God in your journal, just write down one verse from that chapter at the top and write your prayer and just tell God whatever you're feeling today. That's all I want you to do. Just do it every night. She was like, all right, fine. She said she would stumble in from a party and she'd be drunk and high. And she'd write, Lord, drunk again. Sorry. But here's what she would write. If you want to change me, you're going to have to come change me because I can't change me. That is the purest prayer that you could ever pray because it's 100% honest. Here's what people say. I'm not ready to come to Christ yet. Let me go out and try to fix my life up. And when I fix this stuff up, then I'll come to Christ and present him this neat package. He is not looking for a neat package. Don't you dare think that you can fix your life up before you surrender it to the fixer. So my wife did that every night, and guess what happened? Over the course of about, I think it was six months. You can correct me later if I'm wrong about that, baby. I think it was over the course of about six months, her desires started to change. All of a sudden, she had less and less desire to party. And all of a sudden, she had more and more desire to worship. All of a sudden, she had less and less desire to drink, and she had more and more desire to pray. All of a sudden, she had less and less desire for the things of the world and more and more desire for the things of God. Do you know what religion is? Religion is when you try to do that to yourself. But do you know what relationship with Jesus Christ is? Relationship with Jesus Christ is when he does it to you. When you simply come to him and say, this is where I am. This is who I am. This is how I am. But I surrender to you. You change me. Because Lord, if I'm going to change, you're going to have to change me. Because I have no power to change me. I went to see my spiritual father at the beginning of this year, Bishop Robert Daniels. And when I sat in his home he was sharing with me, I was telling him at that time that I needed to lose weight. And at that time, I was about 45 pounds heavier than I am right now. And I was having some medical issues. And it looked like, in my opinion, I was, my life was in jeopardy because of the lifestyle that I was living. And I said to him, I need to change, but I don't know how to change. And I can't find the motivation and I can't find the discipline to make the change. And I'm afraid that if I can't figure out how to make this change, I'm going to die before the end of this year. And he smiled and he said to me, you know, Benjamin... When I came to Jesus and when I received him as my Lord and Savior, the first thing he did was took away the desire for beer. But he didn't take away the desire for weed. And I, I laughed. I said, has he taken it yet? Because <laughs> I can make a call, you know. I still got some connections, you know. <laughs> Sean? You, you, you. <laughs> Sean's like, you know. He said, but then I got filled with the Holy Spirit, and then he took away the desire for marijuana. He said, isn't it interesting that I never quit those things? Jesus took them from me. And he said, Benjamin, this is what God's going to do for you in the realm of your health. Instead of you trying to change yourself, why don't you just surrender to Jesus? Why don't you just come to him every day and say, Lord, I surrender to you in the realm of my health. If you don't help me, I'm lost. 
He said, Benjamin, I guarantee you, if you start coming to God that way, God is going to change your heart from the inside out. I went home and I took that advice and every night I cried out to God and said, God, I'm coming to you and because I need your help and if you don't help me, I'm going to die. So I surrender to you in the realm of my health. Please, please help me to make a change tomorrow morning. And guess what happened? I'd wake up the next morning and I would eat donuts and chitlins and, and, and fried cheese on, I mean, I was, I was eating bad. But the next night, I'd be back in the same place. God, I surrender to you in the realm of my health. I cry out to you. And guess what happened? I prayed that prayer for about three months. And on March 14th at 7.20 a.m., that's when the Holy Spirit visited me and God changed my heart. And what was born in me in that moment was a new motivation and a new discipline, a new perspective and a new set of desires to live differently. And people have said to me, you've got so much self-discipline. No, I don't. I was eating donuts before the service today. Oh, Lord, my wife just heard that. <laughs> Sorry, baby. I, I can't preach on an empty stomach. I'm preaching it off. Do you know how many calories you burn when you preach a sermon? Don't worry, baby. I'm going to work out twice as hard. Oh, Lord. It's not about your motivation. It's not about your willpower. If you think the Christian faith is about you doing better, you doing different for God. I hear people say it all the time. I got to do something for God. I got to do this for God. Let me go to church so I can do something for God. The Christian faith is not about you doing something for God. God don't need nothing. You think God's sitting in heaven going, mm, I feel better about myself. Emily was in church today. She finally did something for me. I come to the house of God because I need to change. I come to the house of God because I need to be healed. I come to the house of God because I need him to do something for me. At the heart of the Christian faith is not you doing something for God. It is you embracing what God has done for you in sending his son Jesus Christ to take all of your sin and all of your pain and all of your brokenness upon his body on the cross where he died for you and God doing something for you by raising his son Jesus up from the dead and making him the son, the savior, and the Lord. Amen. Amen. And so Jesus says, it's not about being more religious. You must be born again. Notice Jesus says, you must be born again. It's not enough to have a Christian mama. It's not enough to say, my grandmama prays for me every day. That's fine. Your grandmama cannot stand before God for you. You must be born again. It's not about coming from a Christian family. You must be born again. It's not about your daddy being a pastor. You must be born again. And then Jesus says, you must be born again. It's not optional. You must be born again. If you're going to walk with him, you must be born again. If you're going to call yourself a Christian, you must be born again. If you're going to experience his love and his life and his power and his blessing on your life, you must be born again. And then he says, you must be born again. It's not about doing, it's about being. Christianity is not a collection of doings, it's about being. You're not a human, human doing, you're a human being. God is more concerned about what's on the inside of you than he's concerned about what's on the 
outside of you. And matter of fact, he rebuked the religious leaders of his day because they knew how to clean up the outside of the cup really good. But he said, on the inside of you, you're like dead men's bones. You clean up well on the outside, but you don't know how to clean up the inside. And the last thing that Jesus needs is a bunch of religious folk coming to church on Sunday, dressing up nonsense in a five-piece suit. Come on, somebody. You must be born again. And then Jesus says, you must be born. Meaning coming to Jesus is about being born into a new family. And just as much, first of all, if you think of the way a baby is born, all of that, first of all, the longing that leads to the conceiving of the child. We want to have a child. And then secondly, the pain that's endured for the birth of that child. We're with the, the white, well, you know, <laughs> I, I, you know, some men like to say, oh, my wife helped. No, no, no. She, it's like the chicken and the egg. I'm like the chicken. I made, an, I made a contribution to the breakfast but the pig that is actually in the breakfast. <laughs> you know what I mean? My wife is the pig that gives the bacon, and I'm the chicken that... L- l- anyway. <laughs> Forget, just scratch that, scratch that analogy out of the podcast, please. The point of the matter is the pain... The pain is experienced by the wife of bringing the child into the world. The longing was experienced by the father He wanted his sons and daughters back. The pain was experienced by Jesus as he gave his life on the cross, but it was also experienced by the Father as he suffered the loss of his own son because he wanted us so badly. But the joy of a new child being born, the joy is experienced by the Father. I remember the day my daughter was born, and I carried her around, and I stood in the window, and all of our family members and friends came to see her, and they were standing on the other side of the window, and I'm holding her. I'm like, look, this is my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased, and I would just make eye contact, and everybody that came, and there's tears in our eyes. We're so excited. Do you realize that when you're born into the kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ, the Father's so excited, he runs you all over heaven in his hands and says, look, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. The joy is experienced by the Father. The Christian faith is not about being more moral or religious. It's about being born into a family. And then finally, Jesus says, you must be born again. The first time you were born, you were born of the flesh, which means you were born into this natural world. But there's another part of you on the inside of you that is dormant, and it's called your spirit. And your spirit is that part of you that has the capacity to interact and to connect with God and to receive His love. That part of you is dead until it's born. And when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, all of a sudden that part of you is born and it comes to life. And when it comes to life and you're born again, all of a sudden you become conscious of the fact that God has always been with you that God has always loved you, and all of a sudden you're able to look back on your life and see that God has walked with you and see that God has carried you and that God has led you to the place and to the moment in which you can experience the lavish of His love. I I bring to you today the good news of the gospel. Jesus is the Son of God, which means He is God with us. Jesus is the Savior, which means He comes to make us sons and daughters of God. And Jesus is the Lord, which means that he is able to intervene in our lives and change us.
from the inside out. And if you can believe these things, if you can receive this Jesus, not the Jesus of pop culture, not the Jesus of Hollywood, not the Jesus that they portray him to be in the media, not that Jesus, but the Jesus of Scripture, the Jesus who is the Son of God, the Jesus who is the Christ, and the Jesus who is the Lord. If you can receive that Jesus, embrace him into your heart, believe on him today in this very place, you will be born again, born into God's family. You will become his sons and his daughters, and your life will never, ever be the same again. Amen. Come on, give God a shout of praise. I need somebody to play. Yeah. Bow your heads. Bow your heads with me for a moment. This is a holy moment. First of all, I want to say this as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Actually, look up at me for a second. I, I got to give you this part before I go to that part, this, because this is too important. In Ma I, got, I got to say one more thing about Jesus being the Lord, because this, this, I don't want to miss this. In Matthew chapter 8, there's two stories. The first is a centurion who was a Roman soldier who oversaw 100 men. He comes to Jesus in Matthew chapter 8, verse 5 and following, and he says, Lord, my servant is home, and he's sick and he's bedridden. Jesus says, I will come and heal him. But the centurion says, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come and enter my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be well. For I also am a man under authority. I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to this one, come, and he comes. And Jesus marvels. He says, I haven't seen such great faith even in Israel. Why does the centurion call him Lord? Because he identifies Jesus as the one who has the authority over his particular situation. Later in the chapter, in chapter 8, verse 25, the disciples are on the boat with Jesus, and a storm comes up that looks like the storm's going to capsize the boat, and everybody's going to drown. And at first, the disciples are working really hard on the deck of the boat to try to save the boat from going down. But suddenly they realize that they're being overwhelmed, and that if Jesus doesn't do anything, they're all going to die. So they all together run down to the mast of the ship where Jesus is asleep on a cushion taking a nap, and they wake him up and they say, Lord, save us for we are perishing. Why do they call him Lord? They call him Lord because they're acknowledging him as the one who has authority over their storm. Now listen, some of you are in a storm today. And the definition of a storm is any life situation that is beyond your power. If you are in a life situation that is beyond your power to remedy, you are in a storm. And when you are in a storm, you need the Lord. You need the Lord. And they came to Jesus in the storm and said, Lord, save us for we are perishing. And he goes out on the deck of the boat and he speaks to the wind and says, peace be still. And he speaks to the waves and he says, be still. And there's a great calm. He has authority over your storm. This is what I want to say. I want you to play softly behind me because this is an important moment right here. Listen, there's at least one of you. There's more than one, but one in particular you're in a particular kind of storm right now. You're in a storm in which you have despaired even of life. To the extent to which you've come to the conclusion that the best thing that could happen for you is the end of your life. And I believe there's at least one person, whether here in Emeryville or in San Francisco, you've actually made the decision to end your life. I want you to know I've been praying for you all week long. Every day that I've been praying for this message and preparing this message, God has been screaming in my ear that there's somebody in this room, 
either here in Emeryville or in San Francisco, and you have been contemplating suicide. And there's others that have been battling suicidal thoughts. You feel that your life is worthless. You feel that you're a failure. And you've even come to the conclusion that the end of your life would not only be the best thing for you, but for the people closest to you who love you. First thing I want you to know is that, that is a lie of the devil. You might have even thought that it's God's will for your life for you to end it. Let me tell you that that is a demonic lie. It is a lie of the devil. The enemy wants to end your life. God wants to give you new life. The enemy wants you to die. God wants you to be born again. And today, I've got good news for you. Jesus has authority over your storm. He's got the authority to silence the voice of the enemy that seeks to take away your life. I want you to bow your heads with me and close your eyes. Because Jesus is in this place right now. The Son of God. He's walking among us. The Christ. He's walking among us. The Lord. He's walking among us. And He's here because He loves you. And He loves you more than you could ever imagine. More than you could ever quantify. He loves you. And He's stretching out His hand to you today. And He's saying, come to me. If you're weary, if you're broken, come to me. I'll give you rest. You don't have to change yourself. I'll change you. You don't have to fix yourself. I'll fix you. If you're here today, either on the Emeryville side or the San Francisco side, under the sound of my voice, you're here today and you feel stirred in your heart, stirred in your heart to open up your heart to Jesus. Maybe you have never invited him in before. Maybe you thought you did, but you didn't know who he was. You didn't know you were inviting in the Son of God, the Savior, and the Lord. But today, you want to open your heart to the Son of God, to the Savior, and the Lord. You're inviting Him in to be God with you. To be the one who bears your sins, your brokenness, and your pain. And to be the one who has authority to silence your storm. You're surrendering your life to Him, and you just feel stirred. And maybe you say you're not 100% there, but you're ready to take a step. That's all this is, is a step. This is not... This is not about committing to being perfect. It's not what it is. This is simply about taking a step. You're ready to take that step. You're just ready to take a step towards Jesus today and open your heart. I want you just to lift your hand right where you are. I want to see your hand. I see that hand right there. I see that hand right there. I see that hand right there. I see a hand over there. You say, I'm ready to open my heart to Jesus and let him in. I'm believing there's hands on the San Francisco side as well. I see a hand back there. Yes. Yes. Yes, Lord Jesus. Yes, Lord Jesus. I want us all to pray this prayer with these who have lifted their hands. I want us all to say this prayer afresh and anew. Just repeat after me. It's real easy. It's just a simple step. Say, Jesus, I come to you. 
And I say today that I believe in you. You are the Son of God. You are the Savior. And you are the Lord. You died for me. And you rose from the dead. I receive you today. I open up my heart to you. I can't change me, but you can change me. I can't fix me, but you can fix me. And so I ask you to come. I surrender to you. Take whatever you need to take. Heal whatever you need to heal. Strengthen whatever you need to strengthen. And teach me to walk with you. I pray in your name. Amen. Now I'm going to pray for you now. Father, I thank you for these who have made this bold step of opening up their hearts to you. My heart rejoices with you, Father, because new children have been born to you today. We congratulate you, Father, on the birth of your new sons and daughters. And we know that no one rejoices right now more than you do. I just see the Father dancing all across heaven that you would take this simple step. He's dancing all over heaven over you. And Father, we rejoice with you today. We're so happy for you, Father. And we rejoice with these sons and daughters of yours who are born today. Thank you for allowing them to be born here in our midst. Father, we, we vow that we're going to love them. We vow that we're going to surround them. We're going to care for them. We're going to give them everything we have because there's no greater privilege, Father, than serving your children. It's how we serve you. We give you praise and glory and honor today, and I speak over these today that you would protect them from the evil one, that you strengthen and encourage them in every way, and that you set them free to live in newness of life. By the power of the Holy Spirit, I pray. And in the name of your son, Jesus, amen. Amen. Come on, give God a shout of praise.